Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Nitai Daitel, and I'm a senior program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for such an important conversation at this critical juncture in the bilateral relationship. We are delighted today to partner with the World Trade Centers Association and put on our important program. Small and medium-sized enterprises have provided crucial ballast to the bilateral relationship for decades. While the Biden administration's foreign policy for the middle class is a departure in tone from President Trump's America First rhetoric, we have not yet seen substantive changes in China trade policy. With tariffs remaining in place and the path forward for SMEs uncertain, we've convened today's program to explore what current policies vis-a-vis China mean for American SMEs and to understand how those actively engaged in the day-to-day of the bilateral economic relationship have been faring through these turbulent times. We are joined here today by four terrific panelists. I will only briefly introduce them now as their full bios are posted on our event page or the link you can see posted in the chat. First, Gary Bean is the chair of the board of the World Trade Center of Greater Philadelphia and partner and chair of the China Business Group and International Group at White & Williams LLP. Second, Ron Bracalente is the third generation president and CEO of privately owned Bracalente Manufacturing Group. For more than 70 years, Bracalente has specialized in global manufacturing solutions with an emphasis on machining and mechanical assembly with plants in the United States and China and offices in India and Vietnam. Next, Amy Selico is a principal at the Albright Stonebridge Group and leads the firm's DC-based China practice. Previously, Ms. Selico served as Senior Director for China Affairs at the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. Finally, Linda Conlon is president at the World Trade Center of Greater Philadelphia. Previously, she served as Vice Chair and First Vice President for the Export-Import Bank of the United States and worked at the Department of Commerce. This afternoon, we will first have a discussion among our experts and leave ample time for audience questions. To ask a question, please click the Q&A icon located at the bottom of your screen and type it in. Please include your name and affiliation and to specify to whom you are directing your question if applicable. Please note that the chat function is disabled. We will only use it to post resources and links pertinent to the discussion. Also, please note that this meeting is on the record and being recorded to be posted on our website later. Before we jump into the discussion, I would like to turn it over to Robin Van Poenbroek. Executive Director of Business Development at the World Trade Centers Association for a few introductory words. Robin, take it away. Yeah, well, thank you and a good afternoon from New York. Uh, I am Robin van Peimbroek, Executive Director of Business Development here at the World Trade Centers Association. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this uh, very special event. Uh, the WTCA is an international trade organization with a mission to facilitate international trade and development, but also to promote intercultural understanding. We have over 300 World Trade Centers in nearly 100 countries in our global network, many in China and in the United States. So our World Trade Centers in turn represent many thousands of companies, many of which are small and medium enterprises. So we advocate for much needed reform of the international trade infrastructure. So it can actually work for everyone and to be more inclusive, especially for SMEs around the world who are true engines of the economy. Now, with a digital globalization emerging, we are witnessing imbalances and disruptions now in international trade. And it is exactly the US-China relationship that will need to provide a solid basis for stability globally. 
So I'm therefore very grateful for today's program and for the wonderful partnership with the National Committee on US-China Relations. And I wanted to thank both the teams at the National Committee and the WTCA for making the program happen. And a big thank you also to our guests uh, for being so generous uh, with their time. We have a lot of work ahead of us and I look forward to uh, further developing our partnership here. It is now my pleasure to hand it over to our moderator for today, Steve Orlands, uh, president of the National Committee. Uh, with an impressive career in both public and private sectors, uh, Steve can pull from his extensive experience uh, from Carlisle to being part of the team that actually helped establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. So thank you again and over to you, Steve. Robin, thanks and thank everybody for, for joining us today. I have the very pleasurable duty today of not having to speak, but just moderating with four outstanding panelists. So our thought is to kind of start at the, almost the macro level and the Washington level, and then bring it down to kind of what's really happening to SMEs and that we can do this with the World Trade Center Association is, is terrific. It's the first of what I hope will be a, deep, a deepening partnership. But Amy, why don't we start with you kind of what's going on in, in DC um, with respect to kind of, you know, trade and, and um, SMEs vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Thanks so much, Steve. It is terrific to be here um, uh, to speak today about this really important uh, bilateral relationship. And of course, um, the impact on SMEs as well as the contribution of SMEs to US-China trade I think everybody on this call understands the robust and very important history of US-China trade ties. Trading goods alone in 2020 exceeded $600 billion between the United States and China. And that just demonstrates the real value to American producers exporting to China, as well as the real value to American consumers and American companies in importing goods from China. But I think we all know that. And so I thought in setting the stage, I would really focus on the continued downward trajectory in US-China trade and investment ties. Uh, from my perch here in Washington, DC, focused on the way that in fact, the Biden administration and Congress are continuing to frame US-China trade ties through the lens of enhanced competition. Uh, not only in trade relationships, but certainly impacting US-China economic ties. Trade may have once been, of course, um, one of the stabilizing uh, forces in US-China, uh, in the overall US-China relationship, often called the ballast stabilizing force in the trade relationship. But today, of course, it, it continues to be the tip of the spear of an increasingly contentious relationship between uh, the US and China. Uh, and this has been true for almost five years now, and of course made much worse uh, with the start of the trade war by the last administration. And of course, impacting all of us on this call through the application of tariffs by the US and retaliatory tariffs by the Chinese government. As everybody in this webinar understands, those tariffs continue to be a real drag on US-China trade and on the US-China relationship, but they are very difficult for the Biden folks to attack early on uh, to eliminate because of the political pressures 
both in Washington, D.C. and in Beijing on the national governments in, in talking about where and how the U.S.-China relationship um, should change. And so I think we all have to understand that it's safe to assume that in 2021 and going forward, we are going to continue to see intense competition and contention between the US and China, specifically on trade issues, based on how the Biden administration, Congress, and Beijing are continuing to pursue policies that really are pushing for some decoupling of our two economies. Already, even though its overall China review is still underway, the Biden administration has demonstrated a real comfort in continuing to take a tough line against China on economic issues. Over the past week, as I'm sure you've all seen, uh, there have been two executive orders, one of which uh, will continue to restrict the ability of Americans to invest in some uh, Chinese companies and a second executive order, which will continue scrutiny of Chinese companies operating in the United States that hold US user data. And so US-China trade tensions like tensions in the overall relationship are going to increasingly play out not only between Washington and Beijing, but on the global stage. And that's why we're also intently focused on what's happening in Europe this week, the G7, as well as at the EU, US, as well as NATO summits. My final point, just in talking about this overall environment, is that as we look at US-China trade ties, domestic politics in both of our countries, both uh, Washington and Beijing, are going to continue to, to be real constraints on some kind of rehabilitation of US-China trade relations. Since I'm here in Washington, DC, I'll just of course, remind everybody on the, on the call that in a town that agrees on nothing, Democrats and Republicans are coming together uh, to pursue tougher restrictions on economic activity between the US and China. And the Biden administration is increasingly, I believe, constrained by that pressure from Democrats and Republicans on Congress to continue to be tough on China and instead of trying to rehabilitate US-China trade ties, continue to maintain some restrictions on the ability of the trade relationship to grow. Uh, let me stop there, Steve, there's so much more to cover, but I think hopefully that at least um, frames the overall relationship as, as it stands right I think it does. It gives us, I think, a, a perfect overview of it. So let me then turn to Gary and, and, and Linda. Um, talk about kind of the view of this from organizations like the, the World Trade uh, Council Association and how you're viewing this and then what you can do to kind of, um, in a way, make, make it easier for your members to continue to benefit from trade with China. Linda first. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Steve. And I want to uh, thank uh, the uh, National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for this opportunity to participate along with my board chair, Gary Bean, 
and Ron Bracalente, one of our outstanding members of the World Trade Center of Greater Philadelphia, and also to thank Robin von Payenbrook of the World Trade Centers Association. As a World Trade Center, we're located in Center City, Philadelphia. We're one of over 300 World Trade Centers in some 100 countries. We work with businesses, largely small and medium-sized uh, companies, and that's why this discussion today uh, has so much relevance uh, for us. Uh, we work with, on average, between actively uh, two to 300 companies uh, per year, helping them to accelerate their global business growth in countries around uh, the world. We've been doing that for nearly two decades. Uh, and during that time, we have helped companies to increase their export sales uh, collectively by about $2 billion, that's with a B, $2 billion. So we're quite proud of that record. And uh, China is a very important market for us. If we look at the greater Philadelphia area, which is southeastern Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey, uh, it is the fifth largest market right now uh, for us, representing on average about a billion dollars worth of export sales alone. We have a number of companies, uh, including Broccolenti, who are very active in China, who do business with China, have operations in China. Um, and so consequently, uh, we, have, we have put together what we call the China Club, where companies meet, they gather, they, they share best practices, challenges, problems, solutions, and they basically learn from one another. So um, being able to trade freely and fairly with, uh, with China is very important to us as an organization and to our companies. And one last point that I'll, I'll make, uh, we are part of the World Trade Centers Association, which is a powerful network. In China alone, they have some 38 World Trade Centers in greater China, the greater China region, 34 on the mainland. And what that means is that we have an office there to help and facilitate business for our companies in China and to help them participate in major trade shows uh, with, with whom um, and with whom we, we, uh, we work uh, with trade show organizers in Shanghai, in Xi'an, and in Beijing on three major shows per year as an other opportunity to do business with one another. Uh, so consequently, the, the discussions today very, very important to our individual member uh, organizations and companies. Let me go to, to Gary with kind of the same question. And, and also, see if talk about, I don't know if you have this data, how many jobs in you know, the Philadelphia area actually are created or maintained because of exports to China? Gary. Now, I, I know with respect to the work that we do at the World Trade Center, and Linda, correct me if my numbers are off, but through the work that we've done in the Philadelphia region, you know, we've generated, I, I believe it's 26,000, it may be more uh, jobs. So we really make a difference. And, and just to echo some of the points that Linda made, um, you know, one of the, 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 I think, most positive features of our China Operations Club is the peer-to-peer -peer nature. Uh, and so what we do is we look at topical issues, we bring in speakers and we learn from one another. And it's a great way to get a better understanding of how to succeed in China. 
Um, and you know, we, we provided this club because there was a great deal of activity between our region and China. Initially, that activity was much more supply-based, more uh, supply chain uh, driven. Uh, but I've noticed and um, very clearly you know, over the years that that has pivoted uh, and um, many of our members, if not most of our members, are really uh, engaged in pursuing the marketplace in China. Uh, and that's another way that the World Trade Center assists our members. As Linda said, uh, China has a large network of World Trade Centers. Uh, Philadelphia has a sister city relationship with Tianjin. Uh, Tianjin uh, is um, about a 45 minute high speed line um, uh, ride outside of Beijing and the fifth largest city uh, in China. Uh, and that sister city relationship goes back for many, many decades. Uh, one of the things that we were able to do, but now very limited under the current um, climate was, as Linda said, we would sponsor uh, groups, business groups that would come in, uh, organized through the um, uh, World Trade Center in Tianjin, and they'd be looking to connect with our member companies to engage in business, uh, both inbound and outbound. And similarly, we would go to China. I've, I've personally been to Tianjin, I, I believe about 30 times. Uh, and uh, I would go in my capacity as chairman of the board uh, and we would represent our companies. We'd bring some of our companies with us uh, and we would meet, uh, the, the latest meeting was in the uh, medical products arena. Uh, and again, try to uh, bring together companies and it had been very successful. It was a business to business level. And now of course, um, as much because of the pandemic, uh, but also because of the chilling of the relationships, you know, we haven't had uh, that, that type of in-person engagement. Um, and you know, we're hoping uh, that you know, we can kind of settle down in the relationship with China and go back to that because uh, we've had many successes that uh, resulted out of that business-to-business, person-to-person engagement. Do you think after travel is allowed that that will continue or has the relationship so deteriorated that it would be hard to run the kinds of uh, almost you know, trade shows that you've done historically, trade shows that, that generate jobs in the Philadelphia area? I don't think it has, I, I believe it will continue. And let me explain why with a caveat. Uh, many of the relationships that have been built between the cities are decades long. And those strong relationships, including the relationships that our member companies have, uh, they will survive. They, they're, they're in a sense under the radar of what's happening at the national level. And I'm confident, and we'll talk a little later, I believe, on you know, the actual experiences, and, and Ron will tell his actual experience, uh, that while it's tested, it, it will continue. I think what's more challenging, as I, I know uh, most everyone knows is tuning in today, most everything in China has a government component. And so some of the relationships that we've established for 10 years, while we still have emails back and forth, I don't know if they will be permitted to engage at the same level um, you know, once travel is permitted. It's an open question. I'm confident because of the strong interpersonal relationships that we've built 
that both sides will attempt to make that happen. Uh, but as I believe everybody's aware with China, um, you know, there are certain things that have to get approved before they can happen. So, Steve, I think time will tell on that front. And, and last question, then I want to go to Ron to kind of take it. We're going down level by level now to the operating level. Uh, is the 26,000 for all exports or exports to China? Linda, I'm going to let you uh, chime in on that to see if I have my numbers correct. These are, these are all exports. Uh, in other words, we, we assist companies on an annual basis, provide trade counseling, educational programs, and then they document on a year-by-year -year basis how much they've registered in export sales. But the short answer to that, that's across many countries. And, and with China, you said it was the fifth largest market for yes. Philadelphia area businesses? Exactly. At what percentage? What, roughly 20, 25 percent, 15, 10? I, I would say probably in the range of 20, 15 to 20 percent. And that's just a that's just a guess. So somewhere in the neighborhood of, of uh, six, seven thousand jobs. Yeah. So it's material. And Steve, I'll just add on that, that, you know, our China Operations Club uh, it is our largest um, dedicated club of companies. And, you know, we have, you know, perhaps 30, 35 active members, and they are the companies that are generating the revenue and generating the jobs. Ron, so let's go to somebody who's on the front lines, we would call you. Talk about what this downturn, talk about your business with China, talk about what the downturn in the trade relationship has meant for your business and what you think the consequences are for folks in the Philadelphia area. Sure, well, thanks, Steve. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for including me in this panel. Um, I, I feel honored to, to be able to speak with all of you and the, and the guests that are participating. Um, so, so I guess it's important for me to start maybe with the first uh, trip that I took to China back in 2003. Similar to the World Trade Association, we belong to a national trade association for metalworking, and they put together a trade mission back in 2003, which I was one of 60 people that went on that trade mission. I believe it was 45 or 50 uh, companies. And the companies were all very similar to ours. You know, we're a, a family uh, business uh, on third generation, you know, predominantly in, in the metalworking field. But the idea was of the trade mission was to go to China uh, to see companies and they set it up, you know, sort of, um, in a unique way. We started out with very old and sort of antiquated companies and every day the companies got a little better and better to a point where, you know, the first night sitting around the bar, we all were saying to each other, like, we, got, we don't have anything to worry about. Uh, this is all good. And then by this third or fourth night, we're all looking at each other with sort of a different uh, stare. Um, but the evenings were, were filled with uh, laughter and, and, and cultural experiences. The Chinese uh, uh, companies, the leadership of those companies that we had visited during the day joined us for their typical traditional Chinese meals. And that was a real taste of the culture. And I think that's uh, a, you know, a big part of the trade mission at that time. And it goes to Gary's point about how valuable you know, that, that ability to go back and forth and visit you know, our countries and to see really what's going on. Because you can get on the news, you can read, but nothing is going to uh, you know, give you that experience like a face-to-face -face, uh, face -face meeting. So really, that's that's how it started for for, for us. Uh, you know, up until that point, you know, we'd say say 50 years of our 70 years, we were you know a local company supporting local customers, 
And, um, you know, this, this was a decision that we had to make. Uh, we did realize uh, shortly thereafter that a lot of our customers had gone uh, to China and set up, set up companies. And I think the biggest thing that you heard of back then was, you know, access to the, to the, to the low cost and labor. But the companies that really were smart about it were there because of the market. And um, we, we put together a plan and we, we followed up on it, uh, started with supply chains and then we developed our own plant in 2008. So, you know, I, I would say that uh, to answer your question, um, you know, business is business, politics are politics. Um, how things have changed, I mean, you guys covered a lot of it, but Gary hit it on the head, you know, the, the relationships that we built, you know, 10, 20 years ago um, are not gonna change. Um, you know, I think it's really, really difficult to, to develop and build new relationships, but to maintain uh, the relationship that we have. I mean, uh, I am missing China, uh, you know, you know, it'll be two years this November since I've been there. Um, I've tacked, uh, you know, tallying about 50 some trips over the years. And, um, you know, it's difficult, you know, uh, my general manager in our plan over there says, you're not going to recognize the place when you get here. Um, we're in a growth uh, strategy and mode right now uh, coming off the pandemic as that got under, under control, um, you know, immediately the economy started to really kick in. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, our business strategy is really focused on the customer, focused on, you know, what is it that the customer wants? Um, and, and we had a lot of customers back in the 90s and the early 2000s basically saying, we need to have a spend of, you know, north of 50% in low cost regions. Um, we lost business here in the United States as a result of it. So we followed our customers to China and that's what ex expanded our business. So the things that I think we all are in front of us today, you know, if, if that was the case back then, we probably wouldn't be in China. You know, I'll leave, I'll leave you with that. I mean, if the, if the kind of the atmosphere of the relationship was this difficult, you just wouldn't, as a small business, you just wouldn't take the step of trying to. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to Gary's point, exactly. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, with COVID, you know, we can't travel there right now, but, uh, you know, effectively without a long quarantine. But yeah, I mean, I really do believe that um, it would be difficult, you know, so, I mean, on a local level, you know, the Chinese government's, you know, op open arms, welcoming, you know, foreign investment, uh, you know, they realized, I think, in order to get their, you know, low class to a middle class, they needed to do it on the back of foreign investment. And, and that's evident. I mean, it's, it's a huge, uh, but, but along with that, you know, comes, uh, you know, these um, companies that realize they need to need to be where the, where the market is. And there's very few products that are growing faster than they are uh, in Asia around the rest of the world. So that's the reason to be there. That's why we're there. We're serving our customers. And, and, and through that, you know, the business to business relationships, you can have the same thing. Both, both sides can win. We're, I think on the political uh, landscape, we're both after the same thing. So it's more of a contentious relationship. Did the tariffs and the downturn in the tone of the relationship affect your business or it just continued and you know you, you don't have a lot of product moving across national lines, so it was it was okay that you wouldn't start again if if the relationship was it is what it is today. But basically, it didn't have an enormous effect on you. Um, it, well, you know, I've got two stories to support that. So you know, in one case, uh, our customers that realized they could import a finished product and avoid the tariffs uh, did that. So. Uh, our business lost, you know, the, that, the, the parts part of that equation and the U.S. company lost the assembly. 
um, of it, and, 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 and so, other, other local uh, parts that were procured domestically. So in, in, in the cases of products that could be, you know, manufactured complete and shipped into the United States, um, they were able to do that. And today you can still do that and avoid the tariff completely. As long as as long as it's a finished product ready to go to the retail store, so that 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 definitely hurt our business, and it hurt a lot of companies here in the U.S. as well. Um, so it was the tariffs that we put on, or it was the retaliatory tariffs that the Chinese put on. No, it's a three hundred one tariff. Yeah, the three hundred one tariff. Our tariffs. But also to that to that point, Steve, um, and I, I spoke uh, and Gary spoke with other members of our China club uh, informally about about seven of them that they acknowledge that tariffs are impacting uh, their business, um, particularly those uh, retaliatory tariffs uh, on China's part, uh, elevating the cost of goods going into uh, China and some of them as a result are looking at other markets and depending less on the China market, as an example. But there are other challenges that they're facing, not only in China, but worldwide, but particularly in China. Shipping costs are increasing the cost of the, their uh, products. They continue to rise and it's costing companies time and money. Uh, recently, there was an outbreak of COVID in Shenzhen. One company reported they're at 30% uh, capacity. So uh, they're looking at uh, other smaller ports uh, in the area as a result, but that's another way that costs are, are increasing and uh, commodity prices as well are increasing the costs. Was there a reduction for all, for any of the four of you, was there a reduction in employment in the United States as a result of those tariffs? You know, um, our business model changed um, here in the U.S. So we we were actually able to grow our business. So we 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 turned and pivoted our business more towards regulated industries, things that had to be made in the United States versus you know industrial products that could be made anywhere. Uh, we didn't unhook those relationships because those relationships we had for 40 or 50 years. Um, but you know when when you hear a customer telling you now these are corporate um, companies OEMs that are you know stock New York Stock Exchange companies telling you that they have to shift 60% of their spend into low cost regions, you know, the handwriting's on the wall. So that was going on across, I mean, whole, the whole entire industrial space. So, you know, that was a business decision that we made. So we, we stick to regulated industries here uh, and parts that, that are marketed with the Made in USA tag on them. Uh, and that's all we'll manufacture now here in the States. So it is actually you know, stabilized our business to a point, and then now it's growing. I mean, our, our, our business is growing about, you know, 20 to 30% overall this year, uh, because we're also a global company that, that, that can support our customers' needs. Um, and we have a very, very good staff and a very experienced uh, a global workforce here that uh, can make decisions, you know, the freight and logistics, as an example. Um, we've developed uh, sourcing in India and Vietnam long before the pandemic, and the tariffs, um, so you know we can flex into those regions as a result. Um, but but China is still, even with the tariff, in, in some cases, still competitive. Uh, they've got very mature supply chains, and they have know-how um, that's not easily uh, replaced. Gary, talk about you kind of you're obviously in, in your China practice and your law firm. You've got a lot of clients who've got a lot of experiences with what's gone on. Talk about what's happened to your clients. 
Yeah, and, and just really to follow up on what Ron said, I, you know, I think the answer is it depends on your question of job loss and how it impacts the clients and the, the, the companies, including our member companies, World Trade Center, uh, doing business in China. Um, it, it, some of our companies have been able to absolutely dollar for dollar just take the tariff cost that they've uh, been uh, experiencing and pass it along to their end users. Um, and, but they are in industries where there are no uh, other opportunities. You know, with the, for example, we have a member in the specialty chemical business and some of the components of, of what they uh, produce here in the US, the, the only resources are available in China right now. So all, the, all of the, that market is going through the same thing so they can pass along uh, the price increase. Uh, we've had some clients that were able to push some of the price increase from tariffs back on the supplier, but you have to have the leverage to be able to do that. And you also have to have that strong relationship, uh, but, but that's the exception. We've had other clients that um, you know, really have not only struggled with the tariffs, but it, it's really, as Linda was saying, it's really a perfect storm for many companies now in the United States there's real inflationary pressure. Um, Linda listed, you know, some of the component parts, but you know, energy is is a piece of that as well. Uh, and then, you know, you look at um, you know some of the labor shortages that people are seeing here. Um, you know, so there are a lot of challenges out there. Tariffs, that's a part of it. Just to echo what Ron uh, was saying about, you know, um, uh, having alternative. Um, uh, supply sources, Ron was ahead of the curve. A lot of the companies, particularly the smaller companies, just weren't in the position to dual source or have alternative sources. And one of the challenges we're hearing from some of the small mid-sized companies, it takes years and years to develop those relationships. And so the, the, a lot of the companies we work with, they are going to stay with their supply chain in China but this was a wake-up call, uh, and they're looking to uh, to Vietnam. They're looking to India. Uh, but then again, they can't travel there. And you know, and I, I spoke to one of our members, and you know, and he said, Gary, you know, you remember it took us two to three years to find the right partner to 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 have that relationship building. So it, it, it's a challenging time, and certainly tariffs are not helping. Uh, the climate that a lot of companies are facing that are doing international work. So that and, raises, Linda, go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, and, to, and to your point, Gary, uh, in talking with some of our, our companies that are looking to other sources in Southeast Asia, in fact, we now have an Indian Southeast Asia club uh, for those members as well. Uh, many of them said, look, if it's pretty sophisticated manufacturing, it's not like we can shut off the lights uh, move stuff uh, very easily and change very quickly, as, as Gary said. Th there's a cost that comes to that, and I'm sure Ron would, would uh, agree with that. Um, if it's less sophisticated manufacturing, then they possibly might consider uh, a, a move to, uh, to other parts in, in Asia or Southeast Asia. But again, there you have to be certain that the supply chains have the capacity and they're adequate. Uh, for the company um, involved. Um, but I, I do think that uh, as, as a rule, all of them have expressed that business, as you know, hates uncertainty. 
and the uncertainty on the level of our bilateral relationships certainly has an impact on, on their future strategy as well, but they're not ready to, to, to pick up and, and leave right away. There's, there's a cost to that as well. The, um, I mean, Gary raised the, the inflation question and this question then I think is for Amy. Um, you know, the, the data this morning, we have uh, really fairly rapidly increasing costs. And a lot, a lot of it is manufacturing input we have wage pressure, a bunch of things. The, the, how will that play? And this is a question actually from uh, Pin Nee, who's the CEO of Wanshang America, an automotive parts company in, in Ohio and Illinois and, and uh, you know, basically in the Midwest. Not in, not, in, not in Philadelphia, to my knowledge, but who knows? It's a big company. Um, will this inflationary pressure force the Biden administration to end the tariffs? Because one way you relieve inflation would be get rid of the tariffs. Um, yeah, that that is absolutely logical. I think the challenge from here in Washington is what's driving the continuation of tariffs. I don't think anybody uh, anybody even in here in Washington believes that the tariffs are going to bring China to the table to make concessions in the trade relationship. The reason for the initial application. Um, and so the challenge for us here in Washington in advocating for those tariffs to be removed is I believe um, the political leaders in the Biden administration don't want to give up quote unquote leverage in uh, eventual trade negotiations with the Chinese. Now on the positive side, just to, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm doom and gloom here, we, we heard today that Secretary Raimondo also spoke with her Chinese counterpart overnight. And that's in addition to Ambassador Tai and Secretary Yellen already having spoken to their shared counterpart in China about US-China economic relations and the trade relationship. Unfortunately, not a lot of talk about restarting dialogue, but that is a really important foundational step that all three of these economic agencies have now engaged with their Chinese counterparts. And Steve, you have to believe that uh, for Secretary Raimondo, who is so focused on economic revitalization here in the United States, that she understands that these tariffs are a tax on Americans, both consumers as well as producers. And given this inflationary pressure, this is not good for what the Biden administration has said is one of its top priorities. And of course, that's economic revitalization. But we have to be patient and wait for those trade talks to restart, because I think it is very unlikely there will be a unilateral lifting of tariffs before we actually engage with the Chinese, because we want to see, of course, those retaliatory, retaliatory tariffs also. Are the tariffs leverage, Amy? You said at USTR, I guess both for Amy and Linda. Do you think that they're, they're leverage? No, I don't think that they're leverage. I do think that they are low-hanging fruit. When we talk about how the U.S. and China could come together and have some early wins in, uh, in a commercial dialogue, taking those tariffs off is clearly good for the US economy and for the Chinese economy. But we have to meet, we have to see progress. And again, I think that that could be one area of early progress 
is removing those tariffs. But again, Steve, I know I've already said it, but I'm going to say it probably a few more times. The Biden administration is under enormous pressure here in Washington to maintain tough policies on China. And so in order for them to see a removal of tariffs as absolutely critical, uh, they have to hear from us. The business community has to talk about how worker-centric trade policy it needs to include tariff relief because workers are being harmed by these tariffs. Linda? Exactly, and that, that relates to really making certain that small business uh, has a voice. Uh, large businesses, mm -hmm. large corporations have, with all due respect, Gary, have uh, uh, hundreds of, of, of attorneys and, and lawyers to, to, to advocate for uh, policies that they, they think uh, would, would benefit uh, them, but we need to make sure that small businesses continue to have a voice. Tariffs aren't the only issues that, that are on the table uh, or that are part of the, the bilateral discussion. We've heard for years uh, the issue of intellectual property uh, protection, the forced transfer of, of, of technology, among many other issues that are important to small businesses as, as well. And this is what we're hearing from our, our small business. So we hope that in addition to tariffs, those are going to be part of the, uh, of the discussion. I agree with, with Amy, it's, uh, they should be retained, but that they're not the complete uh, answer uh, to, uh, to ameliorating the, the bilateral uh, relationship. It would take 10 minutes among people of goodwill to end the tariffs that were imposed by the Trump administration, and China would instantaneously end its retaliatory tariffs. It would take 10 minutes to do, no joke. I mean, it, this, it's not really, I wouldn't need a high priced lawyer to do it. It just, it, just could, it just could be done. Clearly that's not on the table. That's, you know, or else we would have seen movement. So what is it? Is it what Linda is suggesting, Amy, that, that we need to get additional intellectual property rights protection? Is it going to be subsidies of state-owned enterprises? Is it going to be, you know, making sure that companies like Ron are treated exactly the same as a Chinese company, kind of national treatment issues? What would satisfy the United States so we can get these tariffs, which I believe not only hurt American workers, but hurt working families much more than rich people. So, you know, when we talk to Walmart and, you know, they have, I think what, what Gary said, they've, they passed along most of the increase in prices. Now, if you're rich, you kind of go an extra four or 500 bucks is not a big deal. If you're making, you know, $25,000 a year, that's really material. So it's so unfair to kind of working families and the Biden administration talks so much about this. So I don't quite under, what are they, what's gonna be the plan from USTR to kind of get these things removed? Well, I completely agree with Linda. It's from the, the, the Biden administration's perspective, the tariffs are a tool. They're not an issue to be solved. They're a tool to try to push China to make progress on longstanding problems. And so in addition to forced technology transfer and inadequate enforcement of intellectual property rights in China, I do think another two that, that really are concerning um, to this administration, one is the use of uh, subsidies, uh, Chinese subsidies that distort 
uh, global markets. It is, this is not just a bilateral issue. And so, and then of course, continued market access restrictions. You mentioned it, uh, Steve, this concept of reciprocity. So if the US economy is open uh, to Chinese investment, why isn't uh, China's market more open to our companies, investors on the ground in China? I really wanna underscore what Ron said earlier on, and that is that the Chinese government is saying that in order to continue its, its economic development trajectory, remarkable economic development trajectory, including this year, they need foreign investors. And so um, that's an opportunity. But what I do think the Biden administration wants to hear explicitly from the Chinese government is, how are you going to address some of these market access restrictions and non-market barriers uh, that continue to impede uh, foreign investors in the market? In their latest survey, AmCham uh, China said that the number one concern that American companies are facing in China right now is uh, unequal treatment, that they are facing increasing discrimination. And they put the blame for that squarely on the deterioration in US-China relations. And so they are feeling more discriminated against. Now, these same companies don't want to leave the China market. And again, I think Ron was the one who made that point too, that despite all of these calls for decoupling, that China and the US have started put policies in support of, um, we are not seeing European and American companies by and large, or Japanese companies for that matter, wanting to leave the market. Yes, more diversification, absolutely. But I think for our trade negotiators, Steve, they wanna see the Chinese government continue to make commitments and live up to them that uh, that demonstrates that the China market is open on equal terms and fair terms uh, for American companies. We've heard Jake Sullivan say that, uh, that the Biden administration is not interested just in getting more access for Goldman Sachs in China. They want small and medium-sized enterprises to be able to benefit from the China market. They want American workers to benefit from US-China trade. And so I, I do think the Chinese government's going to have to give. And again, I think one of the results, if we can get some give there, is tariff relief. That could be something that happens as a result of it. But first, we need to have those conversations. We need Ron, to are you engage. Is your business affected? Two questions. One, do you think you're given fair access to the Chinese market, given your investment there? Second, do you think, um, are, are, some of you, are some of your competitors subsidized? So are there subsidies that flow from the state to a competitor which reduces their cost and makes it more difficult for you to sell at a fair price? All right, so I'll, I'll address those uh, questions uh, last first. So uh, we have access to the same raw material pricing that a state-owned company would have. So, you know, what Amy was pointing out is uh, the Chinese government continues to subsidize their raw materials. Um, they did it uh, extensively, you know, from the time that we started there until now. I think the only material that's still being subsidized significantly is steel. Uh, aluminum was stopped really with the anti-dumping of 2011 and um, stainless steel uh, and, and red metals, uh, brass and copper are, are pretty much on par of what 
we would uh, pay here in the U.S. But steel products, which is a you know there's a lot in steel. I mean, agriculture just to just to name one industry um, is predominantly that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't see us uh, having a disadvantage. Um, we we typically don't do business with Chinese-owned companies. We 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 focus on foreign-owned entities that are in China, um, just for all the reasons that you're mentioning. I think um, you know the Chinese handle business a little differently than foreigners do. Um, the, the, this, it comes down more to the culture and, and to, to the respect of uh, the supply chain. Um, but um, so I, I really can't answer that question, you know, with with a with, a, with an example, you know, if, if, if we're getting uh, treated or mistreated. I can tell you this, you know, at our 10 year anniversary, the, gov the local government, you know, came and, 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 and insisted they sit next to me at our celebration. So that was interesting. Um, and we got a plaque for paying the taxes in, in China. So, you know, we, we run our books the, the way we'd run them here. So we're not playing games. Um, so, um, you know, we, we ended up, I guess, uh, hitting a mark with uh, paying some taxes there. But anyway, I it, it, it's hard to say, you know, to your question there, the second one. And, and Steve, if, if I could just jump in for a minute, sure. because just hearing the, this discussion and particularly the question of, you know, will I have, will I be treated fairly in China? Um, you know, when we work with companies at the World Trade Center, you know, they look at, you know, the, the, the common theme is, if I make an investment, is it safe and can I get it back? Two, will I be treated the same as local companies? And then three, will my intellectual property be protected? You know, when we're talking about China. Uh, and these are probably the same questions that Ron went through many years ago when they decided to go to China. I think the challenge now is with the uh, breakdown in the relationships and the, the back and forth that continues, I think it's more challenging for a company new to export or looking for other markets to, to put China down, which was always, or at least in the last 10 years or so, a natural because of the growing demands uh, with the growing middle class. I think some of the uh, now disconnect at the national level uh, makes smaller companies question whether they want to go to China. I think the companies, and, and this are, these are primarily the companies that we deal with that are there already, they can figure out ways to deal with it because they have strong relationships. But I'm more concerned about is there going to be an expansion of companies going into China for the first time? And that's a lot of the companies that we work with at the World Trade Center. With the largest, already the largest middle class in the world with increasing size, it's, it sounds tragic that right. you won't be able to create good jobs in the United States that can export our products to China's middle class and others. Is, Am I, why is that wrong? <laughs> or maybe everybody agrees. I'm sorry, Ron, you think that's right? Uh, you know, I think, you know, the world's flattened out here and, um, you know, things that are gonna get um, uh, made economically uh, and used in that region, I think makes sense. Um, so you know, we have that challenge here in America, you know, our cost structure, um, you know, doesn't necessarily lend us to, lend ourselves to being globally competitive. Um, when you're looking at not just China, but these other regions we're talking about in India and Vietnam. Um, so uh, to answer your question, I think, you know, that's where policy and, and regulation, um, see things that hold back U.S. manufacturing and companies. I mean, we've learned a lot, you know, so it wasn't that 
uh, long ago, I think the number one selling uh, pickup truck in America is the F-150. Line was shut down because of the supply chain for computer chips, right? So, so why isn't there computer chips being made in America? You know, um, you know, this is this. You can come up with a lot of examples. The pandemic, you know, pointed to a lot of things that you know used to be made in America that aren't made here anymore. I mean, I think there was a lot of people asleep at the wheel uh, when these companies were just exiting, you know, the country. So, uh, to Gary's point earlier, you know, if you didn't have your eye on that, and a lot of you know, I can tell you right now, you know, during the 80s and the 90s, while I was running this business, I wasn't really focused on the world markets. I never thought for a second I would be in China until, you know, we lost a chunk of business here that was, you know, significant. We had six machines. We had about 30 people. Um, we got that infamous phone call, you know, what's your inventory level <laughs> um, from our customer? And, you know, I asked, why are you moving the business? They said, well, you know, I said, has our quality been, you know, bad? Has our delivery been bad? No, everything's fine. I said, well, that only leaves price. He said, why didn't you give us the opportunity to quote it? And the numbers that they shared with me were less than the raw material that we were uh, able to purchase here in the United States. So a lot of that has happened over to a point where, um, you know, when I talked earlier, politics is politics, business is business. Businessmen have had to make decisions um, based on the customer. The customer is really dictating, you know, what they want. And the example I gave you with one customer telling uh, us that they needed a 60% spend this, this, was, this was a hundred billion dollars spent and 60% of it, they needed it to come from low cost regions. So I didn't set that policy, the customers did. So, you know, this was going on here for decades. I, I don't think any of us should be surprised where we're at right now. And in the trajectory of China, we need to start thinking about how it's gonna feel and be as a, you know, as potentially the second largest economy. And if we don't watch ourselves, we'll get passed by India in a short time thereafter. So, I mean, we I mean, need it will be the will be the second largest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I think I, I think that's going to happen no matter what we do. <laughs> exactly. You know, all it takes is that. That's kind of what they say baked in the cake. Yep. Um, the median the median income in China all it has to do is get to one fifth of the income here, and they're there. Exactly. So if you, this is for all of you. If you had, hundred and twenty seconds with Catherine Tai the United States trade representative, what would you tell her to do? Who wants to be the first one to kind of swing at that? Amy, since you're out of USTR, it's for you, then the others can follow, get, get a few minutes to think about it. Um, let's, uh, I would just encourage her to think about limiting national security and values and other considerations in the economic relationship. Sometimes there is, there is obviously some bleeding there happening, but it shouldn't be in every part of the trade relationship. And I think she could take a, a lesson from her predecessor who was able to maintain a very good dialogue with his Chinese counterpart, despite a trade war happening because I think Ambassador Lighthizer really did try to stick to trade issues in talking to his counterpart and not allow a lot of other issues to be included in trade discussions. And so that would be one piece of advice. Linda? And I would uh, follow up with a, a couple of 
of things, and, and this is not surprising that uh, whether it's USTR or, or our trade negotiators within the Commerce Department at the International Trade Administration, to really pay attention to the voice of small business. Uh, maybe, maybe that is self-evident from all of what we've been discussing uh, th this afternoon. But the perspective, uh, while some things they're going to agree with larger corporations like the protection of intellectual property, there are some concerns that that really uh, are 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 come from small business that that need to to really be recognized um, and addressed. And I think over the years, USTR has had a small business uh, advocate or or representative. Amy, you would know that as well. I know within. Commerce Department, we operated along with USTR, uh, committees made up of representatives. Ron, I would encourage if it still exists that you that you step up to the plate uh, with your busy schedule uh, so that you hear from, from small businesses uh, throughout, throughout the, the country. And the second thing I would say is, let's not go it alone. Let's look to, it may sound simple, but let's see how we can go. You mentioned, Amy, the Japanese, the European companies there, to find agreement with our allies in how we can address these market access and other issues on behalf of our, of our companies. And the third thing I'll say is I look at the World Trade Center network that I talked about earlier in China, 38 uh, World Trade Centers alone, and in some of these uh, World Trade Centers, they are subsidiaries of the China Council for Promotion of International Trade, the CCPIT. So wouldn't it be great for small business and representatives from CCPIT to talk about what is in their mutual interest and hopefully have that percolate up to decision makers? Maybe that sounds like too much of a Pollyanna, but I would like to say that that could be a a powerful uh, resource. Daria? Yeah, I think I would look at it in a historic uh, perspective. You know, since China opened up to the United States in 73, there's been incredible progress. I've been going to China since the late 1990s and, and along, and Iran has the same experience. I mean, you know, each trip got more exciting about how the relationship was developing, and more importantly, the opportunities, particularly as that middle class, um, you know, started to grow. Um, you know, we have to get back to free trade and fair trade. Um, and you know, once we do that, we recognize that you know we have made a lot of progress. And just the, the reality, you know, we are the two economic engines in the United in, in the world, and we have to coexist. And so, you know, let's build on relations that have built and find a way to simplify it, get back to free trade. You know, earlier this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, a client and uh, a client that is known well at the National Committee, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra. We do their work on their tours in China and they're going to be going back in, in uh, 2053 um, uh, 2023, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, <laughs> for the 50-year anniversary of that performance um, that um, Nixon and Mao put together. And you, you, you look at the relations that have built, there's got to be a way to get back to a more even uh, relationship on the trade side. Uh, but let's not ignore the progress that's been made over the years. Ron, are people 
I mean, the, you're not a business that one would have expected to go to China in a lot of ways. Are people in your community surprised when you say, oh, I've got, I've got this operation in China? How do they respond? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first question is why, you know, um, that we get, uh, you know, a lot. And, um, you know, and, and the answer is simple. I mean, you know, I said it earlier, we follow our customers there. Um, and, and um, you know, we also had quite a bit of damage, you know, leading up to that with just losing chunks of business, you know, over the 70 years of our existence, you know, we never really lost business, uh, certainly for not the, the wrong reasons. Um, and I think that was the wake up call when that happened, you know, the first one was Black & Decker back in the late 90s, you know, the DeWalt product line, the yellow product line was exclusively manufactured in the United States. That's how they branded it. That's how they marketed it. Um, you saw, you know, somebody, you know, in the store with the orange one in the left hand and the yellow one in the right hand, and they made a conscious decision to pay more for that. But sooner or later, you know, that that decision started to migrate. Um, another example is Harley Davidson. They mar actually marketed, they did a market study and asked their customers at what percentage of the motorcycle could be made outside of the United States. They didn't really get specific of where. Um, and you would still consider it a made in USA, you know, a brand that you would tattoo on your arm. And the number was 65%. I might be off a few if anybody's out there uh, fact checking me, but that's, that's a true story. Um, you know, and I, you know, I, I go back to a book that I read shortly after Steve Jobs passed away. It was his biography. And one of the things that I'll never forget about that was that when he developed the iPhone and he knew the potential of it, not only did he want to put the product to the manufacturing in China for two reasons. One was their capacity. And I think everybody underestimates the capacity of the United States, um, but we also have a limit on that, right? We are very productive. We're the, we're the most productive uh, nation in the, in the world, but you just don't, you can't make millions and millions and millions and millions of products without capacity. So understanding where capacities are in the world, um, alloc you know, resources, I mean, they knew that they couldn't keep up and they couldn't meet the, the, the deadlines if they didn't use a, a manufacturing powerhouse. So China's really not great at designing and developing new products. America is, and other countries around the world are. What China's really good at is mass producing them and doing them cost effectively. Um, the Industrial Revolution in China, you know, has, has occurred over like the last 20 years where, you know, in America, you know, we're over a hundred years. They do things extremely quickly. Um, one of the machine tools that we commonly buy here, um, I asked, cause we bought the same machines in China. They sold 4,000 machines in one year. That was more machines than in the entire history of the, of the sales in, the, in North America for that particular Japanese company. So scale and, and, and magnitude is something that people um, generally don't understand. And I think, you know, from a policy standpoint, um, I'd start looking at those numbers a little bit so you understand the complexity, but we need to continue to develop, manufacture and, 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 and innovate here in this country. And, and the IP is really, really uh, an important element. Um, so, uh, you know, that's what I would say. I don't know if I did that in 120 seconds or not. <laughs> well said, well said, Ron. The, um, Amy, we have seen we're beginning to see the tip of the iceberg of what the Biden administration is going to do. We're not seeing below the surface, but the you know the 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 continuation of the prohibition on Americans investing in now 49 Chinese companies. Um, 
was that was continued to some some people's surprise, including mine. Um, you know, we've seen a ending of the ban on TikTok and WeChat. Uh, we've seen Xiaomi, the manufacturer of, of handheld uh, kind of cheaper consumer phones uh, taken off the list. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think, what do you think is underneath the tip of this iceberg? Is this telling us where we're going to be or, and are the political constraints that you talk about so severe that SMEs really need to have um, contingency plans for a real worsening of the relationship? Um, great, great question, Steve. Let me say that, yes, that uh, the, the first executive order limiting, basically continuing uh, the Trump administration's executive order and expanding it on limiting uh, Americans' ability to invest in Chinese companies that have ties to the military and surveillance and the surveillance industry. That was a sign that the Biden administration is comfortable uh, being um, tough on China, but restrictive. It's not just being tough. It is the, they're comfortable restricting trade and investment uh, flows. Um, and this, um, um, the WeChat and TikTok issue, what's, what's interesting to me, Steve, is they came out with an executive order that did say we are taking um, that Trump administration executive off order off the books. However, uh, the president asked the Secretary of Commerce to do an investigation into Chinese companies that hold American user data to make sure that these companies don't have their ownership structure and their leaders don't have ties to the Chinese government. And so we're not out of the woods is what I'm saying, or if I were uh, TikTok or, or WeChat, I would say ByteDance, the parent company, I would say you're not out of the woods. Um, the, the Biden administration is comfortable with these kinds of restrictions. Um, user data is clearly a very sensitive issue. But I think to your broader question, what does this mean? The Biden administration really is taking its time in formulating its overall China strategy and, and has told us that. Catherine Tai has said that on trade policy and we've heard that across the board that the administration wants to talk to not only Republicans and Democrats on the Hill but to Linda's point to our partners and allies outside of the United States to try to coordinate some China policies. And I think what's happening right now in Europe is the Biden administration is trying uh, to get some consensus built on some of its its um, its policies towards China and probably getting some push some real pushback, uh, and so I think that is going to shape the outcome of of um, the Biden administration's China policies. I think right now it looks like they're trying to be pretty expansive and restrictive on the trade and 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 investment front, but if they fail to get consensus from Republicans and Democrats here and from partners and allies abroad, I think that's going to impact um, those policies. And so we do have to be patient, but not complacent. Uh, I, I do think that Catherine Tai just today was talking to the AFL-CIO about a worker-centric trade policy. 
And as all of us have said today, SMEs have, have to speak up and, and, and really speak out against policies that will undermine their competitiveness rather than help. Uh, because uh, obviously Ambassador Tai and the entire cabinet is very focused on the US economy and economic recovery. So we do have an opportunity in that way to speak out against policies that will undermine rather than support SMEs when it comes to US China trade. I think one of the themes I've seen emerge is to some degree surprise from Democrats that the administration has been slow in reversing a number of Trump administration policies. And in some case, not only not reversing them, but continuing them. I listened to a screed against Attorney General Merritt Garland last night for continuing Trump's policies on seizures of journalist records for claiming that um, the, when, when he, the, a defamation suit brought by a woman uh, who said he, well, I don't want to go into it, but in any case, it, it, they were claiming it was still part of the, um, uh, his, his, his work and that it was perfectly reasonable for him to say this woman who accused him of um, worse than sexual harassment was, you know, it's impossible, you know, he, and the Justice Department will continue to defend this. I think Gary would tell you that in, in, in labor law, not clear that was within his, his duties. So I guess my last question for, for uh, you know, Gary, Linda, and Ron is, okay, if this is the situation, what should you be doing? What, what should SMEs be doing? Should they be, you know, what's the vehicles that they use to reach policymakers? What, you know, and do they put in place a risk mitigation uh, strategy vis-a-vis -vis China? Let me start with Gary. I think what a lot of companies have learned is that you do need a risk mitigation strategy. And I think particularly over the last several years, uh, you know, the tariffs, the pandemic has put that into clear focus. Um, so I think that's positive. I think that's something uh, that will help companies long-term um, and at the World Trade Center, and I'll turn it over to Linda, you know, what, what we're really trying to do is we want to continue those strong relationships that we've built. We also want to be a conduit to um, letting leadership in, at both local, state, and federal know how important it is to our member companies you know, that we, I'll just say, normalize uh, relations with China, and we focus more on the trade side of it. Um, but I'll turn it over to Linda on, on how we're trying to accomplish some of that. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, China remains an important market for our region, for our companies, and we will continue uh, to do everything we can to provide the best information possible, uh, relevant information, timely information for our companies so that they can make uh, good, sound business decisions. Uh, this is what we've done throughout our, our two decades of, of experience. Um, we will look at alternatives as it makes sense to, to provide alternatives into other markets. But again, it's important to remain um, 
to to support uh, expanding uh, our our ties and and business with China in whatever ways we can, and doing it prudently and working with our companies so that they have the best information and guidance to be able to do that through vehicles like the uh, like the China Club. Um, I also look at the World Trade Center of Greater Philadelphia as being a wonderful resource and conduit of information uh, to uh, our congressional delegation uh, and those in, in, in Congress that, that really uh, have an impact on our, our, our trade uh, policy along with, with, the, with the administration and to be a voice for, for small business. So we'll look to our, our continuing to, to provide that that service to our, our companies. And for our small businesses, whether it's China or any market, to recognize that there are certain fundamentals that you have to maintain in, in, in mitigating risk, uh, knowing your customer, uh, having export credit insurance, whatever vehicles are available. So we'll continue to uh, provide advice recommend legal, good legal counsel. It's a little plug for you, Gary, but I do mean that sincerely uh, as, as well. So if they go into these markets, including China with eyes wide open, not eyes half shut. Ron, and also Ron, what are you hearing about when When do you expect to next go to China? Oh, yeah, I, I, give I, I, the quarantine rules. Yeah, well, I really hope, I really hope by the end of the year, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how things develop. Um, but you know, I just want to you know give give uh, Linda a plug and and, and the World Trade uh, Association of Philadelphia. I mean, you know, I really you know look to them, you know, the groups that they you know the social events and the and the content that they have really gives uh, small companies like ours uh, not only a voice but you know information uh, sources and and networking that we otherwise wouldn't have. Um, you know, risk, risk mitigation is part of our business strategy. Um, ever since we went global, you know, we realized that um, we needed to have that as part of it. So, you know, China in and itself, um, you know, I think the relationships there are really, really strong. And I really don't see, let's just say a couple of administrations, uh, you know, tearing that up. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just much much deeper than that. You know, China looks at things in, in much larger time periods. We tend to look at things that, you know based on elections every two to four years. I think, um, you know, I just think they're looking past that. Um, I think you know that that you know is 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 the way I run my business too. We have a short term and a long term, a medium term and a long term plan, and that long term plan is you know out 10, 15 years. Um, so I don't see uh, our company not dealing with China in ten to fifteen years. So. Um, I certainly hope, you know, because of uh, how much we rely on them and how much they rely on us. Um, so, you know, that's a very small uh, graph, a point on the graph here from a from a small company. But um, I do believe that that's uh, that's that's something that we should be looking at. So um, I'll, I'll just end, end, end with that. I, and I, I will say that, you know, I do miss China. It's not just, you know, going as a chore. I miss I miss the culture. I miss the people. And believe it or not, I miss the food. Uh, so. I, I've learned how to cook some of their dishes at home just so I could get the, the real uh, Chinese uh, food. So. Well, like you, Ron, this is, it's the longest I have not been to China in 42 years. Wow. So it's, it's um, I miss it too. I miss it too. But hopefully by year end, optimistically by year end, less optimistically at some point in 2022. Yeah. You, you can get a visa, Ron. You just will need to quarantine. 
<laughs> I know the problem is I can't stay in the hotel that I'd like to. You know? <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. And you're really confined to the hotel room. Well, I want to thank all four of you for giving so generously of your time. This has been a fascinating, wonderful program. I want to thank the World Trade Center Association for cooperating with this with us on this program. It's been great. I hope we've brought it down from you know the macro discussion down to how it impacts SMEs uh, throughout the United States using the Philadelphia area as an example. But thank you all so much for joining us and thank our audience uh, for being with us. Thanks. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.